Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden meeting with the UK's Prime Minister and King Charles ahead of a high-stakes NATO summit. How Russia is responding to the latest calls by Ukraine to join NATO and how China comes into play. A green light for Sweden. Turkey has approved the Nordic nation's request to join NATO. Why is Turkey changing its mind and what did Sweden do to help? The Biden administration starts a new process, allowing thousands of immigrants to enter the U.S. more easily. But critics argue it bends the law. A divided Congress facing the ultimate test this week, spending bills. Plus, high-profile hearings with Biden administration officials. We're looking at a packed session. And extreme heat is battering southwestern United States. And the New England region suffers from flash floods. Tens of millions of Americans are under weather warnings. <music> President Biden kicking off the first full day of his trip to Europe with a visit to London. And that's as more intense talks on Ukraine will unfold tomorrow at the NATO summit in Lithuania. Joining us now with more is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao in the capital of that country. Iris, what's the latest? Earlier tonight, President Biden landed here in Vilnius, Lithuania. He was greeted by the Lithuanian president as well as embassy staff and their families. But before coming here for the NATO summit slated for tomorrow, President Biden spent his whole day in the United Kingdom, meeting with King Charles for the first time after the king was crowned. And President Biden also held bilateral talks and drank tea with the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The two reaffirmed U.S. and U.K. ties. Well, Joe, welcome. It's great to have you here. Back in Downing Street, I think. You've been here a few times before, I know, but your first time as president. So we're very privileged and fortunate to have you here. Thanks for coming. But while the two leaders were all smiles on camera, there were issues that they actually disagreed on during their meeting. For example, Washington last week announced that they would send Ukraine cluster bombs, which have been banned by over 100 countries, including the UK. And a Sunak spokesperson said today that the two leaders did raise this issue during their meeting today. And we do expect to hear more from both President Biden and other world leaders in the coming days about their stances on it. And besides that, we know that a big topic surrounding this NATO summit would be whether or not or really how and when to admit Ukraine into the NATO alliance. So President Biden has explicitly said that he would not support an admission of Ukraine into the NATO alliance during this time period because it is at war with Russia. But we are also hearing a response from Russia today, which said that any Ukrainian membership in NATO would be deemed as a major threat that would prompt a harsh, prompt a harsh response. And of course, as Western leaders gather here in Vilnius, we know that a top Russian official also visited China on Monday and met with China, Xi Jinping. And basically after the meeting, the official said that, quote, Russia can count on a firm and friendly, reliable shoulder in China. So a lot is on the plate here as both threats from China and from Russia are on the rise. And of course, remains to be seen how Western leaders, including President Biden, in his major speech slated for Wednesday night, will address these issues on the world stage here in Vilnius. Steph. 
All right, and next, more on the NATO summit. Turkey has finally given its approval to Sweden's NATO membership. The decision came just hours after the Turkish president introduced a quid pro quo, saying that Sweden's bid is only possible if Turkey gets to join the European Union. NTD Sam Wang has more. On Monday, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg said that Turkey has agreed to support Sweden's bid to join the military alliance. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan will forward the request to the parliament as soon as possible. Stoltenberg described the move as a historic step, but added that a clear date for Stockholm's accession could not be given. Prior to the agreement, Erdogan brought up a new condition for Sweden's entry. Come and open the way for Turkey's membership in the European Union. When you pave the way for Turkey, we'll pave the way for Sweden as we did for Finland. Sweden applied for NATO membership last year along with his neighbor Finland. This was shortly after Russia launched its full-scale invasion in Ukraine. But to get the green light to join NATO, all current members must unanimously agree. While Finland was let in back in April this year, Sweden's bid has been held up by Turkey's objection. The nation's leadership has suggested that Sweden was too lenient on groups that Turkey considers as national security threats. Similarly, Turkey has long desired to join the EU since 1987, but the possibility was taken off the table back in 2016, when the Turkish government launched a crackdown against its political opponents following a failed coup against Erdogan. Earlier today, NATO Secretary General Ian Stoltenberg expressed his support for Turkey's EU accession, but he also said, uh, It is important that we stand together in the fight against uh, terrorism, uh, but at the same time it's also important that we uh, address the uh, uh, legitimate security concerns of all allies that, uh, uh, that want to see Sweden as a member of the alliance as soon as possible. In recent months, Stockholm has rolled out new anti-terrorist legislation to meet Turkey's demand. Shortly before the summit, Erdogan said that Sweden must do more on this front to be allowed to join NATO. Aside from Turkey, Hungary is another NATO member that's holding back Sweden's bid. But Hungarian officials said that the nation won't be a hurdle if Turkey changes its mind. Sam Wang, NTD News. And staying in Europe, President Biden saying publicly that the U.S. is low on artillery ammunition amid supporting Ukraine. Meanwhile, the leader of the Wagner Group reportedly met with President Putin after the failed coup last month. NTD's Arian Pazdar reports. President Biden spoke about U.S. military support for Ukraine in an interview with CNN, which aired on Sunday. Biden defended their decision to send ammunition for cluster bombs by saying that the U.S. is running low on other types of ammo. Watch. They're running out of those, that ammunition, and we're low on it. Many concluded that Biden revealed this information by accident, since it's confidential and adversaries around the world could see the interview. To explore this issue and more, I spoke with retired Army colonel and author of The Nation Will Follow, John Mills. Is that true? Is the U.S. really running out of ammunition? Well, yes. I mean, we don't know the exact numbers. Uh, they're classified, but uh, uh, I have been on the joint staff at the Pentagon, the center of all of this information, and we watch very carefully what's called war reserve levels. You seek the signature of the president to approach or even breach that war reserve. So I am sure we are way past that at this point in time. A White House official later corrected the statement, telling Fox News that the military has specific requirements for ammunition. Everything we sent to Ukraine is in excess of that, so the U.S. is not running out of ammunition ourselves. A few days ago, the Biden administration announced that it will send ammunition for the controversial cluster bombs to Ukraine. 
Biden is currently in Europe, where he'll attend the annual NATO summit this week. Many European countries are opposed to using cluster bombs because they can leave behind undetonated munitions, which could later hurt civilians. President Biden is meeting with NATO members this week. How do you think will they react to the U.S. probably sending those bombs to Ukraine? Well, I double-checked three treaties. Uh, the Cluster Bomb Treaty, just simply call it the Cluster Bomb Treaty. We are not signatories. The United States is not a signatory to that. Uh, the Mine Treaty, the U.S. is not a signatory to the Mine Treaty. Chemical Warfare, we are we are a signatory. Uh, and it's bad because we just got rid of our last chemical weapons when we don't know what China and Russia have. Meanwhile, Russia on Monday said that the leader of the Wagner Group met with President Putin just five days after the attempted coup last month. The apparent meeting comes as a surprise, as Putin had branded him a traitor and vowed harsh punishment. The criminal case against him on rebellion charges was later dropped. He's reportedly currently in Russia. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And back in the U.S., the Department of Homeland Security has opened up a new way for immigrants to enter the United States legally. Critics of the new process say it allows migrants to cut in line in front of other applicants. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. The Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, recently announced a new program that allows certain migrants with U.S. relatives to enter the U.S. legally. It will also allow them to work legally while waiting for their immigration visas. The U.S. family member needs to file Form I-130, also known as the Petition for Alien Relative, to begin the process. DHS says the new program called Family Reunification Parole, or FRP, aims to promote family unity and provide legal avenues while reducing irregular migration. Just another example of desperation on the part of the Biden administration to move nationals of Central America and Colombia to the United States in the hopes that it will have fewer people entering this country illegally. I spoke with Andrew Author of the Center for Immigration Studies, who pointed out something about the new process. It allows nationals of Colombia, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras to jump the line, to jump ahead of hundreds of thousands of other foreign nationals who are waiting in line to come to the United States to live and work here even before they receive their visas. This process falls under the existing authority granted by the Immigration and Nationality Act, which allows the Secretary of Homeland Security to temporarily parole non-citizens into the United States on a case-by-case -case basis. But is it really done on a case-by-case -case basis? This past May, shortly after this plan was introduced, the Biden administration said they intended to welcome as many as 100,000 people under the FRP processes. If this is a case-by-case -case basis, then the term case-by-case -case basis has no meaning. They're simply, you know, dropping a blanket on all of those uh, pending visa beneficiaries abroad in those four countries and letting them into this country. That's not a case-by-case -case basis. Now, what they're going to say is, well, they still have to pass medical checks or something like that. That is the opposite of a case-by-case -case basis because you're only going to be excluding people on a case-by-case -case basis. The latest data posted by DHS shows that in the month of May, over 204,000 illegal immigrants were encountered at the southwestern U.S. border. That's about 6,600 encounters per day. As the Biden administration faces scrutiny over its immigration policies, the impact of this program and its compliance with existing laws will be closely watched. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
Next, an update on the government censorship lawsuit brought by the attorneys general for Missouri and Louisiana against the Biden administration. Today, a federal judge denied the Justice Department's request to temporarily block a ruling that places limits on the administration's contact with social media firms. U.S. District Judge Terry A. Doty issued the order last week, which blocks various Biden administration officials and government agencies, such as the DOJ and the FBI, from working with big tech firms to censor posts on social media. The Biden administration argued that the judge's order was too broad and that the limitations could hinder law enforcement activity online. Judge Doty responded today, writing that his order included exceptions for communications about cyber attacks, election interference, and national security threats. He also argued that the Republican attorneys general who brought the suit are most likely going to succeed in proving that the federal agencies and officials significantly encouraged, coerced, or jointly participated in allegedly suppressing social media posts that included information that was critical of COVID-19 vaccines or questioned the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. And on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are back with a full schedule planned. High-profile hearings and spending bills are top priorities. But there are some road bumps ahead. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has updates about what to expect in the People's House this week. Lawmakers are returning from the July 4th recess with a lot of ground to cover. There's the high interest hearings this week. The FBI Director Christopher Wray will testify to the Republican-led Judiciary Committee. Republicans are likely to grill him on what they describe as the politicization of the nation's most distinguished law enforcement agency. They're likely to grill him on questions related to the raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, as well as documents pertaining to the Biden family's overseas business dealings. Then over on the financial service, side, you have that committee prepping for hearings, four hearings this week, all on ESG. Then probably the most pressing on the list is for lawmakers to figure out a way to fund the government on time to avoid a government shutdown, which is particularly concerning right now because both the House and the Senate are on a collision course working within different budget caps. Then, of course, tied up in this, there's a national defense bill. Committees in both chambers did already pass their versions of the bill, roughly $880 billion, but the House bill attracted some criticism from Democrats. There were amendments in the House version of the bill that target cultural issues at the Pentagon, such as eliminating critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. It also aimed to aid service members who were kicked out for not taking the vaccine. And the White House has already sent a statement disapproving of these measures, along with others. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Coming up, tens of millions of Americans are under weather warnings. An extreme heat wave is hitting the southwest, while New England suffers from severe flooding. That and more after the break. Dangerous weather conditions are sweeping across the United States. Tens of millions of Americans are under heat warnings in the southwest and southeast, and millions more are under flood alerts in the northeast. According to the National Weather Service, extreme heat is returning to the southwestern United States. Around 42 million Americans are on alert for dangerous heat as of Monday. 
Parts of California, Nevada, and Arizona are under excessive heat warnings, while parts of Texas and Florida are under heat advisories. Well, we are partnering with, uh, for example, Reliant Utilities and others, uh, providing more air conditions, for, especially to seniors that do not, do not have them. Uh, we open up, for example, well over 20 cooling centers all throughout the city of Houston and trying to create these lily pads throughout the city. Phoenix is forecast to be the hottest city in the U.S., with temperatures expected to reach over 110 degrees for the next two weeks. The city could break the record for the most consecutive days above 110 as a result. Weather forecasters say the latest heat wave in the southwest will last well into the week. Meanwhile, communities in the northeast are dealing with flash floods. Forecasters say 11 million people are under flood alerts as of Monday afternoon. Roughly nine inches, or an entire summer's worth of rain, fell in New York's Hudson Valley on Sunday. At least one person was killed. Orange County in upstate New York reported that a woman had drowned. Nine inches of rain in this community, that they're calling this a 1,000-year event. It's only the second time ever that the National Weather Service issued a flash flood emergency. The last time was Hurricane Ida. Vermont declared a state of emergency over the floods, and authorities say they rescued 19 people as of Monday morning. According to FlightAware, hundreds of flights were canceled at Kennedy, LaGuardia, and Newark airports in the New York metro area, and more than 200 were canceled at Boston's Logan Airport. Officials say the storm has already caused tens of millions of dollars in damage. More downpours in the region are expected, raising the potential for flash flooding. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Concerning that, we'll keep you updated on that story. Over the weekend, a tragic plane accident occurred in Southern California, leaving behind a devastating scene. The crash claimed the lives of all six people on board. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more. On Saturday, six people were killed outside of the French Valley Airport in Riverside County. The Cessna C-550 crashed into a field and burst into flames around 4.15 a.m. It was the second of two landing attempts that morning. Elliot Simpson, an investigator from the National Transportation Safety Board, shared more on the tragedy. The pilot reported to air traffic control that he was going to perform a missed approach, uh, which is generally happens when a pilot can't see the runway environment. Air traffic control then gave clearance to the pilot to perform a public missed approach, then cleared the airplane to return the landing once again. Airplane crashed about 500 feet short of uh, runway 18, which was the original, appeared to be the original intended landing runway. Uh, debris field was about 200 feet long. Uh, most of the airplane, with the exception of the tail, was consumed by uh, fire. Six people on board and all were fatal. Elliot said shortly before landing, the marine layer began to envelop the area with low ceilings and visibility. It would have been a half a mile of visibility, I'm sorry, and 300 feet overcast is what the weather was. And that appeared to meet the minimums for that instrument approach. Witnesses confirmed the dense fog that approached that morning. It looked like a snow blanket uh, right over uh, the shrubbery right here. It's a natural preserve, uh, lots of water underneath. And uh, it reminds me I'm from Michigan. It reminds me of being in a, uh, a snow blizzard almost. That's how dense uh, the fog was. The plane had departed from Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas for the 45-minute flight to Marietta. The victims have been identified as Abigail Vargas, 33 of Marietta, 
Reese Lenders, 25, of Ranchos Palos Verdes, Manuel Vargas, 32, of Temecula, Lindsay Gleish, 31, of Huntington Beach, Alma Rosick, 51, of Temecula, and Ibrahim Rosick, 46, of Temecula. This is the second fatal crash within four days at the French Valley Airport. On July 4th, one man was killed and three people were injured when a single-engine Cessna 172 crashed shortly after takeoff. Christina Corona, NTD News, California. Just tragic. Next, staying in California, a lawsuit against tech giant Cisco has been revived. The San Jose company allegedly helped China in persecuting a spiritual group but it was dismissed nearly 10 years ago. Now, the judges are continuing the case. According to the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, a lawsuit that accuses Cisco of helping the Chinese regime's violent persecution of Falun Gong can move forward to trial. Falun Gong is a faith group that's been heavily persecuted in China since 1999. Its adherents filed a lawsuit in 2011 against Cisco, along with its two former executives, longtime CEO John Chambers and Cisco's then-Vice President for Greater China, Freddie Chung. The plaintiffs were 13 Chinese nationals and a U.S. citizen, Charles Lee. The lawsuit alleges the firm supplied technology to help China's communist officials build a vast surveillance network to identify and track Falun Gong practitioners and facilitate their subsequent arrest and torture. In the filing on July 7th, the federal appellate court found the plaintiff's allegations sufficient for the case to proceed, thus reversing a 2014 lower district court decision to dismiss the case. In a two-to-one opinion reinstating the suit, U.S. Circuit Judge Marsha Burzen wrote, We conclude that plaintiff's allegations, accepted as true, are sufficient to state a plausible claim that Cisco provided essential technical assistance to the Dojung of Falun Gong with awareness that the international law violations of torture, arbitrary detention, disappearance, and extrajudicial killing were substantially likely to take place. Dojung is the Chinese Communist Party term referring to the violent political campaigns the regime instigates against perceived enemies. Ms. Burzon said that the company's actions, many of which took place on U.S. soil, constitute aiding and abetting the Chinese regime's abuses. The plaintiffs allege that Cisco marketed itself to target dissidents and became a facilitator of the regime's violent suppression of faith by designing and developing a comprehensive apparatus with U.S. technologies and talent in exchange for market access. The system the plaintiffs referred to is Golden Shield, the Chinese surveillance platform that's accessible nationwide in China. Cisco, they said, had designed, crafted, and given critical assistance to implement and fine-tune the Golden Shield project at a time when the regime was incapable of developing one on its own. The plaintiffs allege the resulting product was a surveillance system that can monitor Falun Gong adherents' internet activities in real time to identify, round up, and torture members of the religious group. It also builds detailed and constantly updated profiles of suspected and known Falun Gong adherents that Chinese security officers can retrieve anywhere in the country. They added that the information, including location, family, and contacts, aided the regime in rounding up adherents and coercing them to renounce their faith. Circuit Judge Morgan Christen, who dissented, said, I see several sound reasons to decline to recognize a cause of action for aiding and abetting the acts alleged in plaintiff's complaint and I am deeply concerned about the practical consequences of allowing plaintiffs' claims to go forward without input from the political branches. The plaintiff with U.S. citizenship, Charles Lee, said he was arrested in 2003 for practicing Falun Gong in China. 
Lee said he was beaten, deprived of sleep and food, and handcuffed in painful positions during his three-year prison sentence. When he was finally released in 2006, he was also expelled from China. Cisco did not respond by press time for a comment. An important case there. We'll be sure to keep you updated on that one. Next, a popular artificial intelligence bot ChatGPT is being sued. Some big names in the entertainment industry are bringing a class action lawsuit against the company behind ChatGPT. How is it likely to play out? NTD's business, business's Don Ma speaks with the patent professor. So joining me is the patent professor, John Rizvi. He's a registered patent attorney and adjunct professor of patent law at Nova Southeastern Law School in Florida. So John, it seems like so many people right now are filing class action lawsuits against ChatGPT and OpenAI. Um, I think the latest uh, and most prominent being the stand-up comedian Sarah Silverman. There were a number of authors as well in the previous week. They're all suing OpenAI for using their content without permission to train their artificial intelligence language models. So, John, can you tell us if there's any merit to to the suits? Yeah, well, uh, there certainly is. So this is not something I expect to be dismissed on like a summary judgment motion or anything like that. There's certainly merit. Um, uh, an owner of intellectual property, particularly copyright, they have the right to determine who they give permission to uh, for using that work when they give permission and the manner in which that work is used. So the central issue here is that these authors are claiming that the only way that ChatGPT is able to provide such a detailed summary of their books is if they have uh, if they have access to complete work. And of course, the, I think the case is going to turn on where ChatGPT is getting that information and what databases they're using. Uh, because their claim is going to be like, hey, we're not going to the original work, we're simply accessing the internet database. But they're not revealing their sources, and that's uh, problematic. Isn't use of uh, data from the public domain considered fair use? Uh, so fair use is, is certainly a defense to copyright infringement. One of the major factors for fair use is the whether the use is of a commercial intent or if it's of a nonprofit intent. So in the past, when uh, there's a Supreme Court decided a case on, on Sony VHS uh, cassettes and whether homeowners, uh, individual consumers, had the right to, to record shows and watch them later on. And that was permitted under fair use. But a big factor was that the consumer was not going to sell or in any way profit from recording a TV show. They're going to record it and watch it themselves. It was used for time shifting and there's no profit incentive. ChatGPT is certainly, that's not the case. They have models charging monthly fees, and uh, and they're valued, I believe, at the latest value, like $29 billion uh, based on the, the profit that they're making. So it's, it's going to be a stretch to qualify under fair use. So then, by, by that logic, is OpenAI violating the rights of millions of internet users because it's using people's social media comments, posts, blog posts, um, et cetera? Yeah, in fact, um, it's been said that they may very well be the biggest copyright infringer in the history of the world. Of course, their strongest defense is going to be, we are not copying from the original work uh, itself, but we're uh, scraping, uh, you know, internet databases on, on, on millions, billions of, of potential consumers and compiling something based on that, not a violation of the original author's work. Uh, I think the detail in the summary is going to be a big factor. 
And then in order to uh, persuade, I think, uh, anyone of, of, of their claim that they're not copying, they're going to have to reveal their uh, methodology and their databases. And that, in effect, could be, a, a, you know, that could be the death of, of OpenAI because even if they win this case, if they reveal their methodology and their database, then they've essentially given away their proprietary edge. That's And that's going to be the real competitive risk to ChatGPT, is how are they going to maintain their edge and be able to maintain their fees if they no longer can claim that they have a unique proprietary uh, system for providing their answers. All right, thank you so much for the discussion today, John. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Terrific. Pleasure is all mine. And next, Logan Paul's popular prime energy drink is in the crosshairs of Congress. Senator Chuck Schumer wants the FDA to investigate Prime, saying its marketing tactics are directed at young people. The drink has a lot of caffeine, which is not good for kids. Let's see that now. Senator Chuck Schumer has asked the FDA to investigate Logan Paul's Prime Energy drink. In a press release, Senate Democrats said that Prime, one of the most in-demand drinks for kids, is, quote, actually a cauldron of caffeine. At around 200 milligrams per every 12 ounces, Schumer says it has more caffeine than a can of Coca-Cola, a Red Bull, and any cup of coffee. There are um, side effects from caffeine, so things like increasing your heart rate, increasing your blood pressure, they increase diuresis, they increase your, your urination, so you could increased risk of dehydration. Rebecca Carl is a pediatrician from the American Academy of Pediatrics. She says these effects are stronger among children who are more sensitive. Caffeine can also give children headaches, interfere with their sleep, and make them less sensitive to being tired. When it comes to kids, actually there is um, really no demonstrated safe amount of caffeine. So under 12, the American Academy of Pediatrics says no caffeine. Lindsay Malone teaches nutrition at Case Western Reserve University. She says that for kids over 12 and under 18, a maximum of 100 milligrams is recommended. That's about three cans of Coca-Cola. Prime Energy says that this drink is not for under 18s. Um, it has a tremendous amount of caffeine. It has about twice as much caffeine as a Red Bull. Um, but where do you find that kids shouldn't drink Prime Energy? In the fine print. David Monahan is the campaign director at Fair Play, a nonprofit that wants to end marketing to children. Monahan says that saying the drink is for people 18 and over only in the fine print doesn't work. He says this is because Paul and KSI are blasting teens on social media, that they should buy this drink. They're out there on all the platforms where kids and teens are saying this drink is great. You'll be cool if you drink it. If you live an active lifestyle, you need it. Um, you're going to be popular if you drink this drink. Senator Schumer says that Prime's website features insufficient warnings about caffeine content, despite the eye-popping amount. He wants the FDA to investigate Prime's health claims, as well as the social media influencer-centric marketing style. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says her visit to China was direct and productive. We have some takeaways from her four-day trip. And we hear the story of a Romanian teacher who was wrongly imprisoned in China for eight years. That and more after the break.
U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is back from her four-day trip to China. Yellen says she told Chinese officials the U.S. won't allow its national security to be compromised, even at the cost of economic interests. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Yellen's visit to Beijing. Yellen says talks in Beijing were direct and productive. Although the trip didn't result in any major breakthrough between the two countries, Yellen says she was able to press her Chinese counterparts about the regime's unfair economic practices. Fair treatment is critical so American firms and workers compete on a level playing field and benefit economically from trade and investment with China and the huge market it presents for American goods and services. I also expressed my worries about a recent uptick in coercive actions against American firms. The visit came just days after China retaliated in a tech war with the U.S. by announcing restrictions on exports of two strategic materials needed to make semiconductors, solar panels and electric vehicles. Yellen says she defended U.S. measures on trade that China claims is hampering its tech industries and assured officials that the U.S. is not looking to decouple from China. She called the idea disastrous for both countries, destabilizing for the world, and virtually impossible to undertake. We want a dynamic and healthy global economy that is open, free, and fair. The Treasury Secretary says the U.S. means to diversify critical supply chains and will continue to take necessary targeted actions to protect its national interests and those of its allies. I feel confident that we will have more frequent and regular communication. The Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property estimated in 2017 that the U.S. economy suffers an annual loss of up to $6 billion due to the Chinese regime's intellectual property theft each year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And over in China, six people were killed in a reported stabbing incident outside a kindergarten. Chinese authorities said the attack took place this morning in a town in southern China's Guangdong province. Chinese state media cited witnesses saying casualties include one teacher, two parents and three children. Police arrested the suspect, a 25-year-old man, shortly after. The case is now under investigation and police are still confirming the victim's identities. China has faced a spate of multiple stabbings in recent years, often targeting children. This is despite strict controls on guns in the country. And next, the story of a Romanian teacher who was wrongly imprisoned in China for eight years. He spoke to Lee Hall, host of British Thought Leaders. What was life like in, inside a Chinese prison? Well, um, there, are, there are two parts. Uh, the first part, like I just mentioned, is the detention house. Basically, is the place where you have to wait um, to get sentenced. And in China, this, this period can take several years. Usually, it takes about two years. Um, it's very lucky if you get there with just one year. Uh, usually, you have to, we have to wait for, for two full years just to appear before a judge. Nobody said you're, you're guilty of anything. It's just that one police officer that grabbed you and threw you in there, and then, and then that, that's it. During those two years, you're just thrown into this cage with several other people, usually uh, 10 to 12 people in, in, one, in one single cage. And the, the cage is only 12 square meters, so about one square meter per person. And um, 
you, you can't talk to anyone. At least I, 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 I couldn't talk to anyone. Very seldomly I could, I could perhaps see a Pakistani or an Iranian man that spoke some English. Usually it's just Chinese people. There are specifically sent there so that you you would have no one to no one to consult with no one to to speak to and that's that's terrible because it doesn't matter what what tribulation you're going through but if you if you have someone to sort of share that with it it, it becomes easier but everything that happened in this in this particular cage and in this particular period of time was specifically designed um, so as to wear you down so you, you couldn't communicate with anyone outside? No, no, not, not, not really. Um, you can't write to anyone. You can't call. You can't contact anyone. You're completely removed from the world. You're completely removed and, 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 and set down in a, in a different reality. This is their reality, the reality of the Communist Party and the way that it, its justice system works. I don't, I don't even know if it's proper to call it a justice system. <laughs> it's very interesting how the system works because you know I I was I was very lucky um, to not have been married or to not to not have had kids. Um, I I met a lot of people there that had had wives and, and children, and some of them were even used against them yeah. because the only thing that matters um, is confession. Evidence is not necessary. Um, and uh, if they do come up with some evidence, it's all fabricated. Um, it's just some statements from some guys that you've never seen and you will never see in your life. And they say that, you know, you did this and you did that, and that's automatically accepted. And next, over in Europe, the Netherlands Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, will be resigning and leaving politics. That's after his government collapsed over immigration policy. Ruta announced his surprise decision at a parliamentary debate in The Hague earlier today. He said he thinks it's the right time to step down and that he was leaving, quote, with a lot of emotion and with a lot of mixed feelings. The Dutch Prime Minister noted that there are differing opinions about immigration policy within his four-party coalition government. Ruta has been in power since 2010 and is Europe's second longest serving leader. His government will tender its resignation to the Dutch king and new elections will be held in the fall. And coming up, what an attorney wants you to know in the case of a $150 million court order as the case continues about potential danger on the road. And many volunteers have spent their weekend helping veterans in Northern California. NTD spoke with a variety of vendors and heard why they offered free services at a county veteran one-stop shop. These stories and more here on NTD News. Attorneys for a man caught in a crash 10 years ago in Cyprus are warning of a motorcycle model they say is still defective and on the road here in America. They say the Suzuki GSXR 600 motorcycle and other models with the same brake system are currently endangering drivers, pedestrians, and anyone else nearby. That's despite a recall and more than $150 million in damages that the company has been ordered to pay. Suzuki is appealing the ruling, and earlier today I reached out to them, though I didn't hear back. 
But I did speak with one of the plaintiff's attorneys in this case, Gabe Houston, from the trial lab for an update. Gabe, welcome to our show. This case is ongoing. To begin with, could you give us an overview of the case? Sure. So in 2004, Suzuki figured out they had a, um, a defect with their brake, and it's really the investigation over the next uh, 10 years or so where they sort of concealed, they figured out the problem, concealed, and then decided how much they really wanted to reveal about a, a brake defect that affects not just the rider riding the motorcycle, but everybody on the street sharing the roads with that dangerous product. And briefly, what was the issue with the defect? So ultimately, it involves the front brake master cylinder of a motorcycle, which provides 80% of the stopping power for a motorcycle. And is, the braking system is really the only safety mechanism or system on a motorcycle. It had a design defect and a manufacturing defect. Ultimately, it caused corrosion inside this brake. And Suzuki, through their recall, attempted to only address one of those, which was the design defect, and failed to address the manufacturing defect as well as one of the parts inside. Ultimately, what the end result is, there is still corrosion being caused inside this brake that provides 80% of the braking power and keeps the bike under control, especially at a time with sudden emergency braking that happens on motorcycles quite often. My law firm, the Trial Lab, has been engaged in pursuing litigation against Suzuki to this day. Suzuki still presents a problem, an ongoing danger to this day after the recall in new motorcycles manufactured. And we've seen that through various cases we have and we're continuing to litigate here 10 years after the recall was announced. Suzuki was ordered to pay $150 million in punitive damages, but instead the case is heading back to court. Suzuki was found to be 100% responsible for the crash in this case. So what's the argument behind their appeal? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, the argument is that they just don't like the outcome at this point. Uh, they, they think it's too large of an award against the corporation. They wanted it to be based simply and solely on the damages to the client itself, really not understanding what punitive damages against the corporation really are intended to do, and that is to punish and deter future bad conduct. And that's really what we did in this case. We presented a case to try and get them to prevent their bad conduct in the future that they pursued throughout their investigation and really in their announcement of the recall in this case. And I think in this case, we have a pretty good leg to stand on that's going to hold up. The judgment should hold up uh, as the jury awarded in California. All right. Thank you so much for this update. Gabe Houston, appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And staying in California, when it comes to the nation's heroes, communities love showing support to our veterans. This was the case this past weekend in Silicon Valley. NTD's David Lamb was on site at a county fairground. We just had the 4th of July where people celebrated America's freedom. Now over this weekend, a lot of volunteers and veterans came by to this one-stop shop for giving back to the community and veterans that need it. The Veterans Stand Down event was held at the Santa Clara County Fairgrounds in San Jose over the July 8th weekend. And these are free services for veterans, ranging from haircuts, food, and farmer's market to professional services and resources. I was stung by uh, some insect, and so I had to have that treated here on site. And so I was able to talk to one of the uh, volunteer doctors uh, who basically said that uh, the swelling will go away. It is very helpful, especially if you're 
like right out of the uh, military and maybe you've moved into this area and uh, you're not sure of, of how to navigate in the area or you're not sure about uh, services involved, this is, a, this is a perfect venue to come to to find those types of uh, needs. One of those services is haircuts. Veronica Berries says the Veterans Affairs Department contacted her and her team to help out at the event, where each barber served about 10 haircuts per day. So I'm a retired police officer, so I was on the force for a little bit, almost close to 14 years. And one of the biggest things when I got retired, I got medically retired, I was concerned with, I've always done things for the community, how am I going to give back, how am I going to give back? So whenever they contact us to do anything like this, I'm so 100% for it because it's like my way of still contributing, you know, back to the community, back to the society. There were also mobile medical and dental services. Uh, we usually go out to different places uh, in the Bay Area helping with uh, give medical care for homeless veterans. Um, today we're just giving medical care to the veterans that need it. We're establishing care. I love it. I've been doing this for at least three years now. Um, I come from a family with a lot of military backgrounds. This is the county's first stand-down event, made possible through a collaboration between many vendors and agencies. Stand-downs are typically one- to three-day events where U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs staff and volunteers participate. In the military, the term stand down refers to a period of relaxation after a state of alert. Now, it has been a weekend of giving for this two-day event. One of the volunteers told me he brought his son to be able to see what's going on here because he said, no matter where you are, it's important to give back. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.